Hey, Seamus, how's it going, my friend? Sean, good to be with you. Yeah, where are you uh, at in the world? I'm in sunny, uh, sunny Tallahassee, Florida. Oh, beautiful. I was the best man at a wedding once, uh, Cocoa Beach, Florida. Sun was rising, it was in the morning. Beautiful, Florida is, is amazing. All right, so it looks like you're... You, you, we've got quite a lot of overlap over the years. I've gone after the Bush and Clinton crime families in uh, several of my books. And now we've got this term, controligarchs. What, you know, how do you define a controligarch? What does it mean? Yeah, so a controligarch is a com combination of the words control and oligarch, obviously. And uh, it's the billionaires and bureaucrats plotting and scheming to dominate every aspect of our lives. So uh, men like Bill Gates or Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum, uh, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, George Soros, all, all of uh, the world's favorite villains. And for viewers, links for the book and all of Seamus's links are in the description box below this video. So please support his work. You listed some pretty big names there. Who would you classify as the most nefarious? It's so tough. Uh, well, Bill Gates features prominently front and center on the cover. So he's really got his hand in so many pies. Um, he's up to so many different things, whether it's the takeover of the farmland in America or the digital ID scheme that he's rolling out with the United Nations worldwide. Uh, he's working on big things in artificial intelligence. So I, I sort of put him at the center of it all. But of course, George Soros has been at this a long time. He's been trying to erase uh, the borders of countries and uh, import uh, migrants from all over the world, basically just do, do away with the concept of a nation state. Um, and he's also in America uh, behind a lot of the uh, uh, making crime uh, legal. So opening up our prisons, putting in these prosecutors who are very soft on crime. Uh, that's a big problem, obviously. And uh, I think Klaus Schwab, you know, I'll give you a triumvirate of the worst three. Uh, Klaus Schwab, he's really just the front man, the spokesperson. But what he represents, the interests he represents um, are more powerful than basically any country, including the United States or China or the UK. Uh, the World Economic Forum sits on top of trillions upon trillions. I mean, more than 25 trillion just in its top members. So... Uh, Klaus Schwab is pretty pretty dastardly as well. So I was working in Arizona in the stock market in the 1990s and watching Microsoft shares just rise and rise. And this legend came with it of this revenge of the nerds superhero, Bill Gates. How did it go? How did it transform this legend from this man who is now trying to control the world in so many ways? through land, through food, through fake meat? What happened? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I've read all the biographies and all of the, uh, the memoirs, you know, by his father, um, watched all the documentaries on Bill Gates and really got into the weeds with accounts from Microsoft employees. Um, you may remember during the 1990s, Microsoft was under investigation. There was actually a lawsuit filed against Microsoft for anti-competitive business practices. It was the, the famous antitrust suit. And before that, Bill Gates was not very charitable at all. His mother would beg him to uh, give away some of his money to charity. 
And he wouldn't. He was a very cutthroat business guy. Didn't think he needed to be a philanthropist at all. I mean, these are, this is even as he's the world's richest man in the early 1990s. Um, even on her deathbed, his mother asked him to give away to charity. And he, it was really not until the antitrust trial against Microsoft that he goes about rebranding himself as a, this great philanthropist. I mean, he sets up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and all of a sudden, he's not a cutthroat monopolist. He's a, he's a philanthropist. Well, in that antitrust trial in the 90s, the prosecutors uncovered a strategy. You may have heard of it, but many people have not. It was called the Embrace, Extend, Extinguish strategy, whereby Microsoft would seek to cut off the air supply, that's a quote, fr uh, from competitors. And so the example during the antitrust trial in the 90s was uh, the browser wars and how Microsoft would embrace the browser uh, standards of the day and it would then extend its reach. It would put Internet Explorer browser on every single PC. Um, and eventually in the extinguish phase, they would push for changes um, to you know the, the standards and regulations that would cut off the air supply to its competitor, Netscape. Um, and so that, that was a tactic that was unveiled in the Microsoft. I mean, they also use the words exterminate interchangeably with extinguish. But that's what he's doing now in a lot of industries, whether it's the, the health industry, uh, or, or, you know, with uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, whether it's the food industry. I mean, he, how it's working with the food industry is he embraces uh, becoming a farmer, starts buying up all the farmland, starts investing in a lot of these fake meat companies like Beyond Meats and Impossible Foods, uh, starts investing in these new synthetic fertilizer companies. He extends his reach, buys more and more land, invests in more and more companies, and now we are seeing the extinguish phase play out, whereby he pushes for regulation changes. And whether it's, uh, you know, Agenda 2030 net zero uh, cuts on emissions or whether it's banning cattle or drastically reducing, you know, they'll say we need to reduce methane, which means reduce cows. Um, you need to uh, ban certain types of fertilizer. This has got farmers all around the world up in arms because it's happening everywhere. Uh, German German farmers actually just yesterday uh, gridlocked Berlin. They drove hundreds of thousands of tractors uh, and, blo and blockaded Berlin. So the German farmers are upset. We know the, du the Dutch farmers were very upset, are very upset. Uh, France, two weeks, a, a week or two ago, the French farmers were spraying cow manure uh, on, on the government buildings because of these cuts that Bill Gates and others like him are behind. Wow. And I'd like to deep um, dive deeper into that. But before we do so, I'm extremely curious as to whether you've traced the root cause of his psychopathy. Was he bullied by the jocks? What happened? Yeah, well, I went all the way back. I mean, he was uh, he was always a nerd, uh, proud nerd. And yeah, I'm sure he was bullied to a degree, but he was sort of a mama's boy in a, you know, uh, his his mother and his father really created him. And he said that they actually, you know, he was constantly at war with them over who was in control. Um, his his uh, mother, they sent him to counseling or therapy because he was such a problem child. And uh, he was in this group called the Lakeside Pro. And so his father had all these tech clients. I mean, his father was this big hotshot lawyer in Seattle. Basically, single-handedly, the Gates family turned Seattle, Washington into like a biotech hub and his father helped get a lot of other big companies off the ground, uh, companies like Starbucks, uh, Costco, 
um, and Amazon even, you know, Amazon is a Seattle based company that got Gates seed money. But in any case, uh, his father had these clients who were very technologically savvy. You know, they had, it was really having a lot to do with patents and intellectual property. And so even when Bill Gates was just a child, his father was pioneering ways to uh, leverage, you know, the intellectual property of a product to gain a monopoly type, uh, you know, over, over the, the various industries that his clients were in. And so he, Bill Gates, the younger, learned from his father. His father was the general counsel at Microsoft. His father was like the first co-chairman of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, he learned a lot about kind of these cutthroat tactics of using intellectual property, having patents, and then making sure that the competition was banned for one reason or another, um, and so that he would have a monopoly. Um, the Lakeside, going back a little bit to his high school days, the Lakeside Programmers Club, they kicked Bill Gates out. He was kind of, you know, this might be the, the bullying you're talking about. This would be Paul Allen and a couple of the other guys in Seattle who eventually went on to form Microsoft. They kicked Bill Gates out. Um, and he, he, there's a great quote that he, he said. He's like, if you let me back in, you, you just, just know I'm going to take full control over everything. Uh, so you want to be careful. But they let him back into the club. Um, and eventually, you know, the rest is sort of history with Microsoft. It becomes the largest software company in the world um, and, and has been behind a lot of the tech revolution that we are seeing even today with the open AI, you know, chat GPT arms race that's underway. Microsoft is a huge backer of that. And Bill Gates is uh, going to be big into AI. He is big in AI right now. Wow. I had no idea about the extent of the nepotism. The legend I was told in the 90s was that he just started this from scratch out of his garage. <laughs> no, no, it's, well, it's, it's fascinating because it's in the book. And I, and I wanted to get to the bottom of this because there's, there's a lot of big tech guys who have this exact same origin story of like, a, you know, I was just a nerd tinkering around in the garage. Um, Bill Gates hasn't coded a product, like hasn't coded or like programmed uh, something since the TRS like 86. It's like more or less a graphing calculator. So he's not this like computer whiz that you that he's built himself up to be really what happened is his mother was on the board of the United way foundation, a big charity in the United States on, on the board of the United way foundation with the CEO of IBM. And so IBM, uh, she somehow cajoled the IBM John Opel CEO to hire her. I believe he was about 21 years old at the time uh, to, to license Microsoft as its first operating system. The only problem is Microsoft didn't even have an operating system. And so they had to buy one from another company. It was called the QDOS. I mean, this is really in the weed stuff, but the quick and dirty operating system, they purchased it from someone else, um, hired a few programmers from other companies and essentially just, uh, you know, th like middlemaned an operating system for IBM. And then it was that partnership with IBM that turned Microsoft into the giant company it is today. So I don't want to say Bill Gates did nothing, um, but he certainly didn't build it. Okay. So what's Gates's relationship with the CIA? Have you ever explored that? Yeah. Well, all of the big tech companies have very deep ties with the intelligence, uh, you know, with the intelligence agencies, they cooperate fully. Uh, you know, I haven't, I didn't uncover anything like Bill Gates was a, CIA operative. If you've got any th information on that, I'd be I'd be very curious to hear about it. Um, but he he sort of runs in the same circles. Mark Zuckerberg, same deal with Facebook. Um, they have they have close relationships. I don't know that I don't think that they're working 
like directly for, I just think that they're sort of in bed with the intelligence agencies. Which leads me to Elon Musk then, because I listened to Elon Musk, Alex Jones, the Tate brothers recently. I don't know if you heard it, that um, broadcast that went out that got over 100 million people listened to it. But Elon is betraying himself as counter to the mainstream. Now, I know Charlie Robinson has been on and there's two sides to Elon. And we had some other guys on last week who hated Elon. Where do you stand with Elon? I applaud Elon Musk for a lot of things that he's done. I mean, the takeover of Twitter, I think, has thus far been a net positive. Um, you know, just thinking a few years back before he owned Twitter, it was very easy to get canceled, very easy to get shadow banned. I, I mean, I think I'm still to a degree shadow banned. I don't know. You know, I don't think that's probably in some penalty box from uh, a holdover uh, from the previous owners. But in any case, uh, overall, I've seen a lot more information flowing over Twitter or X um, than I did before Elon bought it. So I, gi I give him credit for that. At the same time, he has a uh, sort of technocrat streak running through him. I, I go trace his family back all the way back to his grandfather, who uh, his maternal grandfather, who was one of the founders of the Technocracy Inc. movement in Canada. He actually got kicked out of Canada, the grandfather did, um, for for this movement, which was subversive. I mean, it's a, it's an inherently, and for those who haven't heard like of the term technocracy or what, or don't know what a technocrat is, um, a technocrat is someone who believes that um, the masses are really just too stupid to make decisions. Um, and so you must be ruled by a scientific engineering elite. Um, it's an inherently anti-democratic anti or undemocratic system. They don't want people voting for things. They don't want people uh, to be making the decisions over their own lives. It needs to be the engineers, the scientists, people like Elon Musk. Um, and so Elon, uh, his grandfather, you know, uh, was a founder of that movement. And he has shown many signs to be a technocrat himself. He's, uh, you know, he's got a very cozy relationship. Every single one of his businesses has a very cozy relationship with the government. Um, I, I'm particularly disturbed by the Neuralink ambitions and the brain computer interface um, it's stuff like that that kind of makes me wary. Um, but for now, I'm, ca I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, once he starts putting microchips in brains, I guess we'll have to see where that goes. So what do you think the end game with Neuralink is? Yeah, the end game with Neuralink, I mean, they're not very uh, shy about it right now. I mean, the New York Times actually just did a piece, I think a week or two ago, about uh, the br brain-computer interface and how there's been huge strides made um, you know, uh, right now over 10,000 people have had, uh, a link, a Neuralink type thing implanted in their brain. And there seems to be progress on this. And so they say right now, they say that the, the whole purpose is to cure paralysis, uh, cure traumatic brain injuries, people with, I don't know, like amnesia or, or suffering from some sort of neurological condition and, and who could be against that. Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of how they always put these things into uh, put these things into effect is come up with something that's totally unassailable. So yeah, I'm all for people who are paralyzed, uh, no longer being paralyzed. But the end game is ultimately this sort of transhumanist hellscape where uh, they, they think they can live forever. I mean, Elon Musk has talked about uploading his brain to the cloud. Um, he said he claims to have done it. I don't know how, how we could verify that. But he, has, he claims he's uploaded his brain to the cloud. And the ultimate 
And so that's that's how a Neuralink would work. You, you know, you hook your brain up to a computer. The brain can somehow translate or process all of the things in your brain. I'm skeptical that it would ever work, but nonetheless, New York Times, Elon Musk are reporting it is working. So you'll have to dig deeper yourself into that. I got a lot of information into the book. Uh, and then ultimately, they can you'll be able to download uh, your brain. So you upload it, you save it, and then you download it into some sort of an avatar. And so whether you're living in something like what Mark Zuckerberg is working on with the metaverse, where you're kind of, this would be more like the matrix type situation where you're just kind of sitting in a chair um, and uh, you're, you know, you're living in this fantastic digital world where everything's at the, you know, reach, you know, touch of the fingertips oh, or uh, you download it into some sort of like, you know, uh, Tesla uh, has just unveiled its new robots um, and you live in sort of like a surrogate type situation with, with like the Bruce Willis movie. Nonetheless, these things are like right around the corner. I always thought is, you know, we, we kind of think about like this, this, uh, dystopian like future, like it's far off or science fiction. We'll know it when we reach it. We're sort of at that point right now. So if Elon Musk is claiming that he's put his brain into the cloud, does that mean he has technology that can read people's minds? That would that would seem to be like you know the implication there. I mean, I think you'd. I don't know. I don't know that it's uh, like telepathy where you could do it that way, but I think you'd have to probably hook yourself up in some way. I'm not quite sure uh, on the logistics of all this, um, but he, he that's the kind of things he's funding, which just feels you know feels wrong. That that's kind of what the book gets into is a lot of these guys have this god complex where whether it's um, you know making fake meats as Bill Gates is doing like lab growing like cultured cells and trying to make it bleed like a real hamburger. It's like, there's nothing wrong with a real hamburger. I'm not sure why they, they need to reinvent meat here. Um, and same thing with the Neuralink and the brain computer interfaces and a lot of the other pharmaceutical stuff they're working on. Um, the end goal ultimately, and that's the thing that sort of unites every person on the planet. Even the one thing we may have in common with these, uh, control oligarchs, as I call them, is that we're all going to die. Um, some some of us uh, have made peace with that in ways others haven't, and it appears these guys want to, you know, live forever. It's something that wealthy people have wanted for a long time, and now these guys actually have the the means to bring it about. All right. Well, based on your research, Seamus, do you foresee in our lifetime that the government will have access to some kind of technology whereby if they put a chip into your brain, they will know what you're thinking. But in a way, they don't actually even need it. I mean, they 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 have that right now. Um, and in a way, you don't need a chip in your brain for it. You're you're offering up what you're thinking every moment of every day, all the time, right now. Uh, and pr previously, they didn't have the means to sift through all of your communications and all of your. I mean, our interview right now and to process all of that and to ascribe it to a profile and to determine what you're thinking. But um, I mean, for example, Yuval Noah Harari, the guy at the World Economic Forum, uh, he, he, he's Klaus Schwab's sort of visionary. Uh, he's, he's talked about this exact thing where Facebook or uh, Twitter can know, you know, he says, now, you know, he said he was gay and he says that Facebook or a lot of these big tech companies would know someone who is gay before that person did. And so to a degree, they sort of have that now. I like got real time thinking with a microchip. I'm not sure, 
but the advances in AI are really giving them the uh, the power, whether it's the government or the big tech companies, or since we know they're in bed with each other, both of them, uh, the power to know what you're thinking, to predict your actions. I mean, it's we're not far away from like pre-crime divisions where you know there's a 67% chance you're going to commit a crime, so you're going to get a knock at your door. Um, that, that type of thing's here right now. So one of the things Elon Musk said in the conversation with Alex Jones was that the earth can host a lot more people, but I'm getting the impression that the globalist agenda is to cull the population. Where do you lie on that? Yeah, well, and, and you've just touched on like one of the, the biggest themes of the book here. And, uh, and I applaud, that's one of the things I applaud Elon Musk for because the, like I, I kind of trace it all back, like before there was climate change, before there was global warming, before there was global cooling and before holes in the ozone layer and all of these cataclysmic crises that we need to surrender all of our uh, autonomy and our money to solve to the control oligarchs, there was overpopulation. And so I start with the Rockefeller family and how they've been funding various overpopulation uh, solutions, uh, whether it was Planned Parenthood, before that it was the Birth Control League. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has funded every type of contraceptive from IUDs to birth control pills to even a, an abortifacient, which can uh, kill a baby up to 10 weeks, called RU486 or Mifepristone, which in the United States is really um, a controversial method, but it also happens to be the most popular method. They were funding all of that long before they figured out that, um, you know, calling it women's rights was, uh, was a much better marketing proposition than uh, saying you know, everybody's overpopulated, so you got to kill your offspring. But they've been working on it for 70 plus years, um, convincing people that to kill your offspring. Um, and, and you see it now all the time everywhere. People don't want to have kids. They've been uh, told that, you know, I ask any of your peers, they do, like, you know, my peers, like, uh, are you going to have kids? No, um, I want to save the planet. So I don't think there needs to be any more humans on the planet. That took a long time to convince people of that. And right now, birth rates are at historic lows. The problem is there's no actual evidence that the planet is overpopulated. So I do applaud Elon Musk. Jeff Bezos is another guy who's said the same thing. The overpopulation thing is a myth. Like there, I mean, if you've ever flown by plane over most places in the world, I mean, yeah, there's some deserts and a lot of water, but there is a ton of green space. In fact, if every uh, human lived as densely as people in Manhattan, New York City uh, lived, we could fit the entire human race easily on, uh, you know, the continent of Australia or, or on even New Zealand. Um, and that would leave the entire planet empty. So overpopulation is a myth. Um, it's brought in and they usually say that it's going to lead to resource exhaustion and we're going to run out of resources. There's no evidence of that. Um, in fact, every time that there's a resource that seems to be running low, the price ends up skyrocketing and then a new resource is found to replace it. And in fact, Every resource is, I mean, aside from inflation, has been getting on a much like, you know, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, which indicates there's more resources than ever. And so these overpopulation people, they always fail to take into account the, the most important resource, which is human ingenuity and adaptation. So as a precursor to calling the population, would they first put us into a Hunger Games society structure? Maybe. I mean, I think I think they've done a pretty good job of getting us to cull the population ourselves. I mean, that's I don't I don't I don't allege any sort of like genocidal, um, you know, uh, conspiracy. 
Um, they've done a pretty go good job over the last 50 years of convincing people to stop having children um, and bring the birth rates lower. Now, I mean, Bill Gates still talks about the planet being overpopulated. I think, you know, they ought to take a victory lap. Um, you know, people used to have four, three, four, five kids. Um, now most people have one, maybe two. Um, so, so that's sort of how they're doing it. I mean, if they're going to get extreme about it, they would probably put in place a, a policy like they had in China, a one-child policy. Ted Turner has called for a global one-child policy for 100 years. Uh, he's the billionaire founder of CNN um, and Turner Broadcast Systems and all, you know, a bunch of other media companies. Um, there, there's others, uh, I know Jane Goodall, the, the, the famous uh, gorilla, I guess, person. Uh, she, she thinks that 500 million is the, is the right population for planet Earth. They don't really tell us how they want to get there, but it seems to be some combination of, uh, you know, abortion and, and pharmaceuticals or something. So I have a friend who works on underground multi-million pound homes that are built way, way, way under London for people who are, think that Armageddon is coming. Are you aware of any of these controlligarchs investing in any such properties? Yeah, I actually, I flew to uh, Hawaii, to Kauai, one of the most beautiful islands in Hawaii. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg is building uh, a compound there, and he's well underway of building a deep underground uh, base of sorts that looks like it can accommodate quite a few people. So I guess he can bring all of his friends. I'm not sure, you know, what, what he... Uh, thinks it's, you know, what that's for. I mean, you know, Hawaii is pretty far out in the middle of the ocean. And if it were to get uh, nuked or something, like I don't think his base would survive. But no, a lot of a lot of elites. So, so Mark Zuckerberg is the most prominent one who's building some sort of doomsday bunker on the island of uh, Kauai. There's some great, some people with drones have gone out and captured the, mm -hmm. the state of that construction. It looks like some very thick concrete. Um, I'm sure it will be uh, amazingly tech tech uh, tech savvy and uh, futuristic. Um, I talk about in in chapter nine the dystopian present. It really opens with uh, Zuckerberg talking about his vision for the future, um, which is is pretty dystopian and uh, it's uh, a lot of metaverse stuff. So um, anyway, he his he he gives a tour of the metaverse and it looks like it starts in his Kauai uh, uh, Hawaii home, and then it kind of tr quickly turns into like a digital um space station or something but in any case he he's he's building one bill gates's home in seattle is very high tech it's sixty-six thousand square feet i think he's got like 24 bathrooms uh and he's got a, a handful of other properties uh there's a basement i don't know about a bunker um but i it would not shock me if the world's richest man had a uh, nice bunker somewhere he's got several uh jets uh seaplane uh helicopters etc so um Bezos, I don't know about Bezos's bunker, but we've all seen how big his yacht is. And if his yacht is any indication, uh, he's probably got a, a nice big bunker too. We've only got a minute or so left for this last question then. So you focused on these modern high-tech um, billionaires. What about the bloodlines of Europe, including the royal family? How do they fit into this? Well, maybe that, you know, that might be an interesting next book. I mean, I did, I did uh, find a genealogist who had traced Bill Gates's ancestry back and apparently he was some uh, courtier or, you know, apparently great, great, his great, great, I think like six greats or something uh, 
grandfather, maybe even more going back, was was sort of close to royalty. I don't know, you know, not not quite royal, but uh, some some important sheriff of some kind. But uh, no, I've I've not looked into the bloodlines of the European elite. That sounds like a very interesting book, though. Um, I will say that uh, I've I've got a good chunk on Jeffrey Epstein in the book, um, and something that ne- like not enough people are talking about is that Jeffrey Epstein's bank, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, effectively has the client list. I mean, they admitted they recently paid a three hundred three a combined three hundred and sixty five million dollar settlement. Uh, J.P. Morgan did to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, um, and in that trial that just took place over the last year. Um, they allegedly admitted to uh, facilitating $1 billion in, quote, human trafficking, end quote, transfers. So a lot of people want to know who Jeffrey Epstein's clients were. Everybody wonders why hasn't this list been released? Uh, they need to be asking J.P. Morgan Chase where that list is, what those names are. I agree. And we'd love to get you back to talk about this some more. We um got in trouble for talking about that case a few years ago might have to do it on locals but if you, if you would come back that would be great absolutely fascinating Seamus thanks for spending this time with us really love speaking to you before you go can you just let the viewers know where they can find you and support you oh yeah thank Sean thanks so much I really I really enjoyed this thanks for having me on um, I am at Seamus Bruner on all platforms x Facebook whatever uh, telegram uh, whatever you use I'm there uh, that's S-E-A-M-U-S-B-R-U-N-E-R, all platforms. And the book, you can, you know, you can get it. Uh, it's on Spotify if you like audiobooks. Um, otherwise, it's on uh, a lot of other retailers that you could purchase from. And you can find those at controlligarchsbook.com. We salute what you're doing. Keep up the great work and hope to see you soon. Cheers, Seamus. Thank you, Sean. Have a good day. Enjoy Florida. That's right.